Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the associate pastor. And so we have this winter and spring been looking at some of the 300 questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. And uh, so we're going to uh, look at another today. But we do it because uh, we want to be curious. As a people at LSQ, we want to be people who ask questions. But not only that, we want to be a people who listen to other people's questions because we value people's questions and the people who ask them. And so this morning we look again at another question. The context of this question is uh, uh, Jesus has taken his disciples away from ministry into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there, which is kind of a big olive garden, is what it is. Not the restaurant, but you get it. <laughs> Jesus is near the end of his time on earth. And in a few short hours, he's going to be arrested, uh, tortured, and hung on a cross and die there. He's exhausted and troubled, and he enters Gethsemane, this incredible orchard, with his disciples. He leaves the bulk of them on the outskirts, and he takes three of them, uh, Peter, James, and John, further in. And in verse 37, he tells us something dark and overwhelming begins to happen. And Jesus wants 
help from his friends for whatever is troubling him. He's asking them, can you stay awake, watch, and pray? He does that, if you'll remember as Tess read the passage, three different times with these three disciples. So what's happening to Jesus here? Well, in order to kind of give you an understanding, I was thinking this week about one of the, you can't say pleasure, you would have to say privilege, but it's not a pleasure. And that is everyone, if you live long enough, you will watch someone breathe their last breaths. But if you're a pastor, you see many. I I think in the last uh, 30 years, I have seen lots of people draw their last breaths. And though it is a privilege, it is painful. It leaves a mark on your soul. That is, it's not natural to die. No matter uh, what the Lion King says that it's a circle of life and that it's natural some way. To watch it happen, you can tell at that moment how unnatural that event is. And so it leaves a mark on you. And I can remember every one that I have seen draw their last breath. I can't tell you every wedding that I have done. I can't even tell you all the funerals I've done. But I can tell you about every one of the people I watched die. My first that I actually watched was I was a brand new pastor in uh, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. I just had gotten uh, to the church and all the other pastors went on vacation. (laughs) They were all gone. And, uh, And so the church gets this call. Hey, there's this young couple at the hospital. They just had a baby and they need you. And so you go down there and you find out from the doctor and this young couple that this new, brand new baby they brought into the world, they knew it before the baby would be born, but he would had so many uh, complications, be, uh, not because of the birth, just because of genetics, that he would die in a few hours. And so my job was to be there and comfort them as they watched their baby take its last breath. Very painful scene, very horrible. But they asked two questions, even as their baby died. One is why, which is on everybody's mind. When something unexpected, something so tragic, horrific happens, why? And then the second one, will we ever know joy again? And you can empathize with them and and recognize that at that moment, it may feel like that they will never know joy. They will never be happy again. The mystics used to call that moment the dark night of the soul. The reason I tell you that story is that's what's happening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's having his own dark night of the soul. What the mystics meant by that, it was a time of agony and wrestling with the will of God. If this is what God has for me, is there another way? Is there something else that I can do to accomplish the goal that doesn't require me to go through this? 
And so that's what Jesus is wrestling with in that garden. And so I want us to consider this question. Is there anything in His dark night of the soul that can help us in our own dark nights of the soul? Because if you've not yet had a dark night of the soul, it's just because you're not old enough. Because truthfully, you don't get out of this world without one. If not more than one. So, this is what we all have in common in humanity. Even if you haven't experienced it, you will face one. And so, is there anything that we can learn from Jesus' own wrestling, His own agony, His own trouble, that we can take into our own troubles, our own agonies, our own wrestling? And so, in order to do that, I want us to make three observations about this night. And then, is there anything that we can learn from this night? First, I want us, I want us to be, see that this night was filled with overwhelming sorrow. And then secondly, there, because it was overwhelming sorrow, it's a night filled with overshadowing wrestling. And then thirdly, it's a night that is filled with overpowering weakness. And so let's look at the first one again. Something has began. That's what verse 37 tells us, that something happened there. And so the natural question that we should ask is, what began? What was happening to Jesus as he was in the garden, particularly as he walked further into that garden? So begin with verse 38. It says, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He doesn't tell him yet what that overwhelming sorrow is, but the reason he's wrestling is that right then, not tomorrow, but that night, an overwhelming sorrow had begun. Jesus entered the garden and he began to feel the depth and horror of what laid ahead. What is that sorrow? He felt like he was dying, it says. B.B. Uh, Warfield, if you don't know who he was, he was an old theologian from, uh, from many years ago, said that what he was feeling was an experience of horror. In Mark's account of the same ac action, he adds that Jesus was astonished by whatever it was. And Luke will add he was drenched with sweat and blood. It was so horrific for Jesus to experience whatever he was experiencing, that when he sweat blood, his capillaries were exploding, and out with the sweat came a mixture of blood. Jesus was experiencing what doctors will call a severe shock. But by what? Before answering that question, what began can't be new information. That is, Jesus, when he became fully human, did not give up his fully divine. I know that was a big debate in the first and second century. It's after Jesus' uh, resurrection as the, the church began to rally. Did, was he God? And then he became man and gave up his divinity. And then when he went to the cross and, and resurrected, he gave up his humanity and returned to being divine. No, uh, our confessions and creeds teach us that, that Jesus took on the form of a man. He took on the humanity on top of including in his divinity. And that means that even today, as, God's, as Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, he's still fully man and fully God. 
carrying the very wounds of the cross that we will all be able to see. And so the first thing we have to get our minds around is that Jesus is not experiencing new information. That is, what's going to happen in a few hours will be his arrest, his torture, and his execution. Jesus knew that. In fact, we know he knows it because he began teaching his disciples long before this that he was going to die for the sins of man. He knew he was going to die, and he knew how he was going to die, and he knew when he was going to die. So it can't be that is what's troubling him. What's troubling him is that what happens on that cross and what is happening to him right now, he's never experienced before. It's one thing to know that you're going to die, but it's another one to begin to die. It's one thing to, uh, to breathe, but it's another one to know that you're breathing your last. This is his experience. Something that in all of heaven and all of eternity, Jesus had never experienced. And here's the clue of what's troubling him. Look at verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible may this cup be taken from me. So what is this cup that he's talking about? That whatever is in that cup is an overwhelming sorrow for Jesus in the garden. Well, if you want to turn to Socrates, he will tell you what it is. It's a cup of poison. If you look at uh, Ezekiel, he calls it the cup of ruin. If you look at Isaiah, he will call it the cup of of God's wrath. Jesus was overwhelmed by the thought of experiencing God's wrath for human evil. This is why the Son of God left heaven, came to earth, so that He could take the very wrath that was due our rebellion in our place. And the thought of that experience was an overwhelming sorrow for Jesus. I found one writer who would write about this passage and he said this, this dreadful sorrow is not an expression of fear, nor it is as a shrinking back from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father and finds hell rather than heaven open to him. Did you hear what this writer is saying? Jesus is thinking about what's going to happen in the drinking of that cup of wrath. And it is making him sorrowful. And when he goes to his Father in heaven for peace and comfort, he finds hell instead. One writer will put it this way, Jesus didn't start experiencing the wrath of God on the cross that started in the garden. Even the thought of it was troubling him. He began to that experience. Jesus is praying for strength in the face of his own death, which is only hours away. Rather than finding heaven, he's met with hell. What Jesus tasted in the garden of Gethsemane horrified him and made him stagger. 
To drink that cup was horror to our Savior. Why did Jesus have to drink that? That's a natural question, right? If, if that's what's in the cup, why did he have to drink that? Paul tells us. In Paul's writings, in Romans, he says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short. That's not an excuse that we tend to use that, well, we're all sinners. As an excuse of why we really fail. Why we don't do what God has meant and created us to be and to do. We say, well, I'm just human. Which is another way of saying, don't, don't judge me. This is the way all of us are. No, that, when Paul says, for all of sin and fall short, it's not an excuse, it's an indictment. He's saying what we have all in common together is this common rebellion against our Creator. And then he'll go on and say this, for the wages of that rebellion is death. And then in a later letter he will say, God's judgment for sin is eternal separation from God and eternal destruction. So, here's the thing. Justice demands that every wrong must be made right. You know that. When someone treats you unjustly, you immediately demand justice. When you see injustice, you demand justice. So imagine, here we are, those who have done unjust things ourselves cry out for justice. Imagine the only one true innocent being in the cosmos when he cries for justice. But there's a problem, isn't there? Some would say, Bruce, I don't like talking about hell or wrath. I just want to think of God as loving. In fact, it's, it's kind of archaic, it's kind of old, it's kind of primitive to talk about the wrath of God that is due sin, that God is a judge. The problem is, is that if we do that, if there is no ultimate justice, then there cannot be a truly loving God. If there is no ultimate justice, what hope is there for the victims of injustice, human evil in this world? If they get away with it here and are never held accountable ever, then there's no hope for justice to be had. How will oppressors be held accountable if there is no judge who has the power to punish human evil? The truth is, if you get rid of the idea of the wrath of God, the justice of God, you don't have more loving God, you actually have less. Because God loves those who have experienced injustice, and He loves them too much to let the injustice go without being made right. It is only those who have benefited from privilege that have the luxury to deny justice to the oppressed. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. 
If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. You and I must cry out for justice even if it means that our injustice must be made right too. You and I do not have the luxury to pick and choose which injustices will be made right. Jesus promises that all injustice is made right. Here in the garden, the one we test read to us, Jesus began to taste the cup of God's wrath for human evil that will be, He will drink to the dregs the next day. He begins to drink the cup in the garden, but He will finish the cup on the cross. That is why this night is filled with overwhelming sorrow. This is why Jesus is called a man of sorrows, filled with grief. He began to taste the cup of wrath in that garden that he will drink to the dregs for the people that he came to live and die for. Because it will begin to right the wrongs of our lives. And just the thought of that was crushing his soul. So, the very first thing that we have to recognize as we enter the dark night of the soul is that it's troubling. In fact, it's filled with sorrow. And the further we get in, the more overwhelming that sorrow feels. And so secondly, we see that this night has an overshadow of wrestling What Jesus is asking for in this garden Gethsemane, when he makes his prayer before God, remember the cross is overshadowing this very moment on the cross. Jesus will enter hell for us on the cross. Jesus will be abandoned by family and friends, but he never says, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? He cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me because on the cross I already told you that the payment for sin is eternal separation eternal destruction that's what Jesus goes through in those moments on the cross the drinking to the dregs of the cup of his wrath which makes right our wrongs and don't forget that this casts a long shadow into the garden Jesus is beginning to experience this horror so what does he ask My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And before you get on your high horse and begin to say that, I can't believe it. He he came from eternity. He knew this was going to happen. And he gets to this moment and he wants to wimp out. I can tell you, we would have wimped out much earlier. You and I would have not even gone into that garden to wrestle with the will of God to go the next day to the cross. You know Jesus is being tempted. Are are you sure, God, this is the way? Are you sure, Father, that I've got to go and experience eternal separation and eternal destruction? I've got to right the wrongs of the very people who you want me to save. You want me to die for the rebellion? And he begins to wrestle. And, it, and you can begin to see it if there's any other way. And, and that's one of the great questions, isn't it? Isn't there some other way to save humanity? 
If there was another way, don't you think the Father who has eternally loved the Son would have found one? Instead of making His Son experience the eternal separation and eternal destruction that the rebellion required, He would have found it? If there ever was a moment in time where a father says, okay, it was a great plan, but I see this is too much. I'm going to let this pass. Even if it meant all of us in all of human history are damned. I'm not going to do that to my son. No, that's not what he does. He wrestles, and it's an understandable prayer. It's an understandable prayer is because he knows what he's facing. Not just now, informationally, but experientially. He's begun to drink the cup. So Jesus in the garden wrestles with God for his will, for his life, just like we do. You sure, God, you want me to live here? You sure, God, you want me to be in relationship with these people? You sure, God, you want me to work here? You sure, God, you, you want me to do this? The very things we wrestle with. Jesus is not trying to rebel here. He's not trying to say, God, I'm not going to do it. Make me do it. Not like us. He's just asking, are you sure there's not another way? This is overwhelming it's already crushing my soul it already feels like i'm in hell is there another way but once jesus has wrestled that's what's so beauty about the garden of gethsemane it gives us the full measure of his wrestling with his father in heaven and as he wrestles with it at at some point he gets to the point where okay i'm assured this is the plan and i've got to go through if i want to save my people if I want to right the injustices of this world, if I want to address the rebellion of humanity, then yes, I'm going to have to die. And I'm going to have to be without you in order for that to happen. I've got to separate sin that I'm going to take on from your, the Holy Father on the cross. And so on the cross at that moment, Jesus it says in 2 Corinthians, become sin. On the cross, a rapist dies. On the cross, a, a, a genocide director dies. On the cross, a murderer dies. On the cross, a thief dies. He who knew no sin became sin. And in order to do that, he had to separate that from a holy father. And so the father turns his face from his son that he can die. To experience that eternal separation, eternal destruction for us. And once Jesus says, okay, this is the plan. There is no other way. I'm resolved to doing it. How do you know that? It's what he says in verse 39, right? Not my will, but your will be done which is the end of all wrestling. Jesus struggled through His temptation all the way to resolve. He didn't just fold His hands and hope it worked out. He fell on His face and He wrestled God all the way to resolution. 
But not only was this night filled with overwhelming sorrow because of what he was tasting, not only did it cause this overshadowing wrestling, but it's filled with an overpowering weakness because we're going to contrast two people, two groups, Jesus and his disciples. Because you have to the question, what's their temptation? What are they facing? He's taken, 12, he's taken 11 of them in the garden. Judas has already left by now. There's 11, and he takes three further in, and he asks them, will you, will you just watch and pray with me? And so he finds them sleeping. Jesus asked them to pray and to watch, but they fail to do it. They were sleeping at the very moment of his greatest need. Your closest friends, these are the people that he has spent three years with, showing them, teaching them, healing them, being with them, and at his greatest moment of need, they're asleep. I get it. They're tired. It's been a long three years. It's been a long, difficult three years. They're exhausted by the ministry. He's exhausted by the ministry. It's late at night. And they want to rest. And before we condemn them, I can't imagine doing anything different. And so they give in to their weakness. In the face of the struggle, we too often give in too quickly. Why? When we face our own dark nights of the soul, when, when temptation comes to us, when it's really hard, when it's easier to do something else, we do. Long before resolution, we give in. And they gave in to theirs. Jesus, or it says about Jesus in Hebrews 4, Jesus has been tempted in every way we have, and yet without sin. You ever wonder what that verse means? It means that there's nothing you're facing. There's nothing you're struggling with. There's nothing that is troubling you. There's nothing that is overwhelming sorrow to you that Jesus didn't already face. And the difference is that he went all the way through that to resolution. When we're faced with those kinds of temptations, when we're faced with overwhelming sorrow, we look for a way out. And there's nothing wrong with looking for the way out, but if that's not what God has intended for us, because He wants to conform us into the image of Christ, He wants us to grow in grace, He wants us to grow up, then I think it's a failure to be faithful, which we are guilty of as the disciples are. Jesus has gone further than any one of us. He has gone all the way through temptation to its end, which is without sinning. This is an unusual experience for us to know that temptation actually has a resolution. The reason we often don't know that is because we have given up long before we ever saw the resolution. We rarely get to the end. What is the temptation for the disciples? Verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fail fall into temptation. What's that temptation? When it came time for them to remain faithful to Jesus, they failed. It's an experience that they will repeat often. He's going to be arrested, and one of the questions that people ask them when they see them after Jesus has been arrested, aren't you one of those disciples? And they said, not me. 
I'm not one. I don't know the man. Another time, they're on the cross. Do you realize that almost no one from his band is there? They're all running. After he dies on the cross, they all go fishing. They all return to their lifestyle that was before they met Jesus. Over and over again, they fail to be faithful, including this one in the garden where he says, could you just watch with me? Can you hear his pain? Can't you just be with me as I go through this? I'm not asking you to go through it. I'm just asking you to be with me. And as soon as he turns to pray to his heavenly Father, they go to sleep. They're unfaithful. It's important to note before we go on that even when Jesus finds them falling asleep, unfaithful, he does not abandon them. Can you imagine? You've got one of your closest friends. You're going through something really, really awful. And you've asked him, can you just be with me? I'm not asking you to get me over the hump. I'm not asking you to take this on. I just need someone with me so I'm not alone. And the first opportunity they take, they leave. What would you do? I tell you what I would do. That'd be the end of our friendship. Instead, Jesus says, okay, you've fallen asleep. Would you now watch? And pray and then he finds him again asleep and our text says for a third time okay i know you're falling asleep i know this is hard but i need you i'm not asking you to perform some great miracle just watch and pray and they fall asleep we too have failed jesus but he will remain faithful to us while we are unfaithful to him. Why? He loved us so much that he drank to the dregs of God's wrath for our failure, including our unfaithfulness to him. You see, he didn't just die for those things that you think have nothing to do with God. He also died for, Bruce, will you just watch and pray? Will you just be with me today? I'm not asking for the moon here. Will you just watch? And I don't. He doesn't say, well, that's just one sin too many. That's one step too far away from me. That's as far as I can go. No, he died for that too. Jesus didn't die for us so that he could love us. He died for us because he loved us. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross was God's love letter written on a, wood, a wooden beam and the ink was blood. Let me finish with these quick three applications because obviously it's, a, it's an impassioned, it is a... Uh, moving story to see Jesus in the garden, but what difference does it make? First application is because he faced his temptation, we can face ours. Because he went into his own dark night of the soul, we can go into our own dark nights of the soul. It will sometimes feel like so the sorrow is overwhelming and will consume us. 
We will feel like we may die. And sometimes it will cause us to go and enter a great struggle. Sometimes we want to stop somebody's struggle when in, when in reality, that's what God wants for them. Because it is through the struggle. Ask Jacob. It is through the struggle that he becomes closer to God, not further. But let, a, let the cross cast a long shadow into your dark nights. His victory over His dark night guarantees your victory in yours. God's wrath for our human evil has been drank to the dregs by God, by Jesus. There is not a drop left for you to drink yourself. Do you realize that? He didn't leave anything in the cup. You say, that's a terrible host. But the reality is one drop of the cup was enough to destroy us. Because it's hell itself. No matter what you're going through right now, and some of you are going through really hard things, it's not hell's punishment. It's God's grace. Because He's more interested in a relationship with you than the life you live here right now. Allow Jesus to, res to resolve in the garden to empower you to resolve in your life. So the second application is even if you fall short, I love this one, even if you fall short, and you will. If I, could, if I could have you individually and we had time and you felt safe, you would be able to reflect how many times you have failed. But here's the good news. Even if you fall short, Jesus has already secured your pardon. On the cross, Jesus pardons our failures, including our failure to remain faithful to Him. And He, even now, is interceding for us. You wonder what Jesus is doing. The Bible tells us He's praying for you. And what's really amazing is that because God knows you better than you know yourself, and certainly better than anyone else, He knows how to pray for you. He knows the dark nights of the souls you're going through, and He's praying to His Father, don't let that destroy them. If it takes all the way to sorrowful, to be overwhelmed by the sorrow, then let it go all the way, but don't let it consume them. Don't let it destroy them because they're ours. Because we love them. He prays for us on our struggle for the things that tempt us that we might win the race. And stand before the Heavenly Father and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into your rest. Third application. Hear me now. You can wake up your neighbor who's been asleep up to this moment. If God's acidic wrath can't eat through Jesus' love for you, then there is nothing you can do to eat through God's love for you. Don't miss that. If, if God's wrath can't destroy His love for you, then there is absolutely nothing you can do to rob you of God's love for you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything in this world can separate me, you, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of the greatest capstone verses in the Bible, it's Romans 8, 38 and 39. If you don't yet believe that for yourself, that's okay. Keep coming, keep asking, keep pursuing until you believe that. God's already demonstrated that love for you in that while you were still in rebellion to Him, Christ died for you. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. This is such a beautiful passage of our life, but also the life of Jesus. As He entered the garden and was overwhelmed by that sorrow, He wrestled with you, is there another way? And you told him no. And so he resolved to save. To enter hell. That we would never taste it. Not even a drop. And so that we go through highs and lows in this life. They are not punishment. They are not karma. They are not opportunities to get us back. But they're simply means by which you transform us into your son because nothing can take your love away from us not even you we pray these things that they might be believed that they might be lived in jesus name amen thanks for listening to our podcast we pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of christianity and grow in your faith To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.